my name is Ann and I'm an alcoholic. And it's good to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to welcome all new people here. They're here for their first convention here to, this weekend. It has been absolutely awesome. It's been the best weekend I've had in a long time. And it's really hard to come and talk with a lot of people that are in here that know me and, <laughs> and know how badly I behave sometimes in meetings. And <laughs> I really would like to thank Barbara, uh, the chairman, chair lady, uh, for uh, asking Babs to ask me to come and share with you. Uh, I want to thank Babs for calling me. And when she called me, I was in the middle of starting chemo, and I wasn't sure whether I'd be here or not. But I'm so grateful to be alive. I've had a lot of years of being above ground and <laughs> living on a lot of our time. I, uh, a lot of guys gave me a lot of money this weekend in order to mention their names from the podium. <laughs> I made a killing. But I lost my list. <laughs> I am. I am so grateful that my sponsor's here. I looked around for her when they did the names or the countdown, and I was stretching my neck to see if she was here. She's a very, very, very important lady in my life. And there's a lot of people in this room that are very, very important in my life. Because when I came to you 29 years ago, I never dreamed, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be standing before you on a Sunday morning at the closing meeting, sharing my experience, strength, and hope. Because for a long time, nobody wanted what I had, even in sobriety. Those old timers used to get those newcomers and move them away from me. <laughs> they were afraid I was going to contaminate them. There's people in this room that have molded me and gave me a foundation. And I remember when I met Pat, I've known Pat since I came to, we used to go to Peaks, and she used to say, if you get in here, you won't get over there. That was the funeral home. <laughs> and I remember she used to come up to me, and she would, I would back away, and I'd say, please don't touch me. Don't put your hands on me. I couldn't stand anyone to put their hands on me when I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have had so much love and so much hugs, and I just love to hug today. God, I love to hug, and I love to have fun today. You know, I really do. And I want to thank my friend Carol, who has been so patient with me, who sat with me, listened to me. We laughed and giggled and cried. And this morning when I was getting dressed, I had my... What did I have? <laughs> I had a banana and some yogurt, and I put my clothes on, and I said, now I'm going to the gas chamber. <laughs> how I felt coming down here to be with, to, to be with you. <laughs> and of course, my friend Laird said, dead woman walking, you know, out loud in front of everybody. And my friend Debbie, who I love so dearly, who's just got a wonderful spirit and who's just so, she's such a wonderful lady. And there's so many people, my friend Betty and some other women in here, the Agnes, everybody. This all means so much to me. I don't always tell you that, and I don't always appreciate you. But I want to thank you for my life. You know, I got sober on June 16, 1968, and I tell you how long I'm sober because Norm Alpey, my favorite, favorite speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous, he was so fast talking, he was the only guy I could keep up with because I was fast in those days. <laughs> and Norm always told you how long he was sober 
because he said with all the changes that are happening on Alcoholics Anonymous that one day you might get a pension plan going here and he wanted to get his full benefit. <laughs> so I always let you know how long I'm sober because in case you get a pension plan going here, I definitely want my full benefit. <laughs> Two years ago, I got to talk. I wanted the biggest things that I ever dreamed to be asked to talk. It was for the, I'm shaking so bad. You know, I hope God didn't go to Hawaii this weekend. I hope it's here in Orange County. Because if he did, we're screwed. <laughs> I am, for the 50th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous, they called me from Akron, Ohio, for Founders Day, and I got to go back there to talk at their Saturday night meeting, and I'm not bragging about that, it was just a, an awesome, awesome experience. Because in Akron, Ohio, the, you know, the, only the men get to stay sober and they're not too particular about the women. <laughs> and they also asked me to be their Saturday night speaker. I really had felt I'd come full circle in my life. I felt that I'd gone through a divorce, that I had tried very hard to work it every way I knew how. Lois will tell you. She had to listen to it for a lot of the years. I tried that chapter three. Someday, somehow, I was going to enjoy and control him. The way <laughs> it didn't work. I um, had gone through that, and I felt I had I made peace with myself, and, and I felt that I could go. I could go to the other side if it was necessary. And I felt really good. My kids were all doing good. Everything in my life was just really good. That was in June. In October, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I said, gee, I was just kidding. <laughs> you didn't have to take me so serious. You know? I thought, boy, be careful what you say. You know? You might just get a little thing here. My sister died of breast cancer 13 years ago, and it wasn't a very, very pleasant thing. It was the only memory I had of anybody seeing somebody with breast cancer. And I know this is not breast cancer group, but I got to, I've lived here most of my life, and I shared all of my life with you, and this is part of my life today. And I know there's women out there that are going through a lot of stuff, but I want you to know there's hope, and I want you to know there is a divine God and he's there for us if you really want him. And he will see you through anything you want to get through. Now, if you told me that 29 years ago, I would have told you, you know, where to go. <laughs> I went through, and I can't tell you enough for the people, my friends and Alcoholics Anonymous, my family, my three children that have been there for me and that walked me through it. I thought I was all the way through. And I was going to go in and get those big tits. <laughs> My friend Scotty can't wait till I get them. <laughs> and I kind of thought maybe I would be a dancer. <laughs> and God forgot to take a look at the rest of me. I needed to have my butt tucked and my tummy tucked and my face lifted all the way to the top of my head. <laughs> And so what happened was I had recurrence, and I had to go through some more treatments. And I went through that treatment, so it was a little harder treatment because I, my body had accumulated some stuff from the first chemotherapy. And again, I did it. And I didn't do it on my own. I did it with the power of God. 
and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, you were there for me, and again, you carried me when I couldn't carry myself. I am ever so grateful. Yeah, this Tuesday, I get to go get those tips. <laughs> So next year, when I'm here at this convention, I want to wear a very low-cut dress. <laughs> I'm going to be very, very slinking. <laughs> so look out. <laughs> I am. Um, I am so grateful I stayed here for the miracle to happen for me. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1967. I was 23 years of age when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I didn't know what an alcoholic was, but I most certainly wasn't one of those. My idea of an alcoholic was an old guy down on Anaheim Street. His name was Eddie Reinhardt, and Eddie used to wear a big, long black coat with a rope tied around it, and his hair all slicked back with oil, and he was panhandling for money to get some wine. And I knew Eddie real well because I was down there, too, for a little while, but I wasn't like Eddie. Eddie really had a problem. And those people I ran around with down there on Anaheim Street, they didn't want anything to do with me because I was a troubled drunk and I was a loud mock drunk and I did things and said things to people that I shouldn't have said, but I did. And so I uh, came here to you and I thought I'm not an alcoholic and God, I don't want to be an alcoholic. And sometimes today I don't like being an alcoholic because I think different than most of those people out there. I even think different than most of you in here. <laughs> And that is really a very scary thing, you know. I um, looked around at that time, and, and Pat got here young, too, and, and they were old, weren't they? Really old. I mean old. They were so old. They looked like they, looked like they were going to die any minute, you know. And I just thought, my God, I don't know why I picked 40, but I picked 40 in that time. I can't sit here. They didn't have nice soft chairs like these here are this morning. They had those old hard chairs. And I thought, I can't sit in these hard chairs until I'm 40 years of age. You've got to be kidding. I didn't know that they, they called that projection. And I had projected immediately to be 40 years of age. And I immediately decided that Alcoholics Anonymous was not for me. They did tell me to do something for somebody else. And I did. I went home. I put my husband in the hospital. He had a bad back. And I went out and I drank. And I um, met my sponsor at that time, that first little introduction, and she was so pregnant, I did not want what she had. I mean, definitely, you know, she did not want what she had. She was, oh, just as big as a house. And I looked at her and I thought, poor lady, I don't want what you have. This gets in. If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, I looked around and around and I thought, well, he's got a nice car, you know, probably got some money. I want what he has. And they kept saying, that's not what we're saying, Annie. That's not what we're saying. So I left Alcoholics Anonymous, and the gal that made the 12-step calling me, when I called Alcoholics Anonymous that time, they sent out an English woman, and I was so, I hated being Irish. I hated it. And all of a sudden, I thought, how dare they send me somebody from England? Don't they know that I am Irish? You know? And she had a Cockney accent like she just got off the bloody boat. You know? And she didn't go to night meetings because she had some kind of night blindness. And she said, I don't know what you're going to do. And so then she got a hold of this other girl, Carolyn C., who was sober a whole uh, year, 
and Carolyn came and got me and took me to some meetings. And then I left. But in that eight months that I chose to go out there and drink, I am so grateful to those women that take the time to pick up the phone to check on newcomers. I'd love to stand up here this morning and tell you that I'm one of those. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I am. Uh, unless I know you a little bit, I will call you and check on you. And she called me in that eight months, and she would call up, and I would say, I just had a cup of drinks. And she'd say things like, I'm not interested in your drinking any. I want to be your friend. And God, I long for a friend. I needed a friend. But I didn't want to be her friend. <laughs> Being her friend meant that I would have to come to these lousy AA meetings, and I was not an alcoholic. So I got one of those brainstorms that I talked about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I decided what it was, that it was a recruiting thing. I would recruit somebody for you and get you off my case. So I called Eileen up, who was one of my friends down on Anaheim Street, and I said, Eileen, you're an alcoholic, and you ought to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, okay. And I was so happy, and I called Carolyn up, and I said, I found somebody for you. I was so excited. I can't tell you how excited I was. I just figured she would take Eileen and leave me alone. And how do you tell somebody with a whole year and a half sobriety that you just want them to take your friend and leave you alone? And she said, good, I'll come and get both of you. <laughs> she came and got both of us on a, and took us out to the old Anaheim club in Anaheim. And after the meeting, there was another gal there, and she came up to me after the meeting. And she said, Annie, when are you coming back? And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. She is. Look at her. And I walked out of that meeting. And every time I picked up a drink from that time on, I hear that woman say, when are you coming back? So, you know, Pat and I were talking yesterday at lunch, and you never know, you never know when you're planting seeds, and you never know when you're giving somebody a message in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it be in these rooms or out there on the sidewalk. I, uh, on June 16th, after drinking for eight months, I was malnutritious, my liver was shot, I weighed 85 pounds, and I sat in my living room with that husband that really never knew what to do with me. With his head hanging down on my little girl who was 31 years of age, who's given me two of the most beautiful grandchildren you'll ever want to see, and who is the finest, finest young lady you'll ever want to meet. And I'm not just saying that. I, she's married to a, a doctor. She graduated from USC. And I'd love to take credit for all that, but I don't. I take, give it to you because it was the women in AA that taught me how to be a mother because I was not a real good mother. And that young lady has been very, very good to me. But that morning, she stood by the end of that couch. Her little legs were all black and blue because I abused my children. I didn't mean to, but I did. And her little eyes are kind of sunken in her head. And my husband, his head over there, wringing his hands. And someone had beat the hell out of me the night before. And I said, I'm going to call that girl that wants to be my friend. And he said, you go ahead. You've never completed anything in your life, and you won't stay there either. And I said, I don't care. I've got to go see. I've got to go see what they have, because they can't live inside of me anymore. I don't know why I'm so emotional. I was so grateful when Marianne called me Friday when I got here. And just right when she called, I was crying because I was so overwhelmed that Orange County would even ask me to be here.
I can't tell you what an honor it is. I gotta knock this shit off. Carolyn, Carolyn came that Sunday morning and she took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to know, newcomer, that I would have sold myself real short. Because on that Sunday morning on June 16th, 1968, I sat by the door and I sat in my hands and I shook. And I wanted so bad. All I wanted that morning was stop my head from racing, take this terrible knot out of the pit of my gut and make these shakes go away. And the man stood up here like I am this morning, and I don't know who he was. To this day, I don't know who he was, and I don't know hear anything else. But I heard what he said to me and what he said. If you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. And he told me that I, was, I had a threefold disease. It was an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. And he told me I could get sober and I could stay sober the same way I drank. I was a daily drinker and a periodic drunk. And I went out of that meeting and I wanted to drink. I wanted to drink more than anything in my life I wanted to drink because you hadn't stopped my head from racing and you hadn't taken the knot out of the pit of my gut and you didn't make the shakes go away. But I hear the man say, if you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. And I went to another meeting and I went to a lot of meetings and I met Agnes was my first person that I ever met and Agnes gave me her phone number and I looked at her and I said, I'm not calling you, I can't help you. Agnes didn't want me to help her, but I thought she wanted me to help her. And I met Lois, and Lois has become everything in my life. She became my mother, she became my sister, she became everything. And Lois was the very person that I needed because I was very angry, full of hostility and full of rage. And I got involved with a group on Friday night, the old Lennox group, we used to call it Savior Marriage Group. And I got involved down there, and there was a bunch of us, a lot of good sobriety, old John Mack, Walt Stiles. I could give you names of the most, some of the most wonderful people in the world that just made me who I am today. I got a little piece of each and every one of them. Old Argo from the Garden Grove Club used to say to me, Annie, it's not a chip you've got on your shoulder, honey. It's a log. <laughs> just keep coming back. So I got involved with this group down there and I got very, I used to tell them, I walked around my first year of sobriety. I'm sure Frank Alberson never wanted me to talk at Orange County Convention because he figured that I would swear a lot from the podium. I um, cussed a lot. I couldn't put a sentence together without using four letter words. I uh, would give them definitions of the words that I said. I uh, walked around my first year of sobriety. I gave everybody the finger. I cussed you up one side and down the other. I was waiting for you to tell me I could leave, and you kept coming up to me and said, keep coming back. And I was so disappointed when I found out you were telling everybody an alcoholic phenomenon. <laughs> I used to tell them that God sent me to teach them patience and tolerance, and a lot of them believed it. But those were the people that talked about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those were the people who talked about the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those were the people who talked about our 12 steps of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And those were the people that said, get into service and be active in Alcoholics Anonymous. They talked about cleaning house. 
I want you to know I had the cleanest house in Westminster <laughs> until I found out what I was doing. And they said that was not the kind of house cleaning they had in mind for me. The kind of house cleaning they had in mind for me was an inside job. Lois's husband of many years ago, ex-husband, John Brown, came up to me when I was probably 10 months sober. First of all, I've got to tell you about Jerry. Jerry Follick. I love Jerry. Jerry's very, very dear friend. I spend a lot of time at Jerry's house. Jerry's home today. He's blind. He's had several strokes. I go to his house. I cut his hair. We talk and we laugh. I have so much history with so many people here. You know, I have a lot of history. And I uh, ran into a meeting. Jerry used to be afraid of me. A lot of people were afraid of me. I didn't always have gray hair, folks. I was supposed to grow back red, and it didn't. This is how it grew back. I used to have flaming red hair, bright red, with a mouth to go with it. <laughs> and Jerry kind of never was too, I mean, he was nice. He said, Jerry was a construction worker, but he wouldn't say shit if he had a mouthful. And, uh, and I said a lot more than that. And so I ran into a meeting one night. I was about four months sober. I ran up to Jerry, and I said, Jerry, where are the steps? And how often do I have to run up and down them? I had visions of 12 stone steps somewhere that I had to run up and down. And Jerry looked at me and he said, Annie, did you go to a lot of meetings, honey? And he said, that those steps are read at every meeting that you go to in Chapter 5. And the house stands for honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And willingness is the key. And willingness has always been the key for me. And I went home and I t he told me that night, he said, I tell you, Annie, he said, if you apply these steps to the best of your ability, he said, I guarantee you your life will change. He didn't say it might change, maybe it would change. He guaranteed me my life would change. And if you're new here today, if you apply the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in your life, I stand before you this morning and I guarantee you your life will change. It may not change the way you want it to change, but it will change. I am not one of those AAs that believes that you do the steps. And that's all, you're done. I had, I used to think that way at one time. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that the last three steps are the maintenance steps. I've had to go back many, many, many times and redo those steps. And every year I have to go back and redo those steps because I am not the same person that last year as I am this year. I've had to do a lot of research within my own soul. When that man told me that I was spiritually sick, I did not know how spiritually sick I was. And I know today that any time I have problems here in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's where it goes to. That I am starting to shut off the sunlight of my spirit. And if I shut off the sunlight of my spirit, I am bound to die. And die a horrible death. And believe me, it was said here very well this weekend that this disease is progressive. And it progresses. And it progresses. Even as I stand here before you today, it is progressing. And I don't know where it is. I was one of those that ran around AA and said, why me? Why do I have this? Why doesn't so-and-so have it? And those old-timers, they were mean. They looked at me and they said, why not, Annie? There's something about your face that pisses God off. <laughs> so if you're new, don't ask why. Just do it. So I've had, I don't ask why today. I just do it. I was probably about 10 months sober. And John Brown was Lois, his ex-husband, came up to me and he said, hey kid, he said, have you done the fourth and fifth step? And I looked at John very right in the eye and I said, no, John, and I'm not going to. That's for those of you who drank for 15 or 20 years. 
I only drank for 11 years of my life, and you are much sicker than those of us who only drank for 11 years. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, if you don't do the fourth and fifth step, he said, I am going to renounce it all over Huntington Beach. <laughs> and I didn't have a real good reputation in Huntington Beach as it was, that you're not working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and not to listen to you. And I went home that night and I was terrified and I thought, oh my God, I can't do this. I have to be an exception to the rule because my case is really different. <laughs> and I decided I'm not big on suicide. The only time I ever hear me talking about suicide, I'm going to jump off the curb. I'm not going to hurt myself. I'm more apt to kill you than I am going to kill myself. And I went home and I thought, how am I going to do this? And I got in the bathtub and I thought, I'll drown myself. That is the only answer. I mean, don't you love the thinking? I mean, talk about how you think the solution to, to a problem. Kill yourself. I'll slide down the bathtub and I'll drown myself and everything will be okay and I won't have to do that fourth and fifth step. <laughs> and I remembered when they read chapter five, they say grave, emotional, and mental disorder and I always knew they were looking right at me. And I remembered that came into my mind and said, and there are those who have grave emotional and mental disorders. And I thought, I am not. I slid right back up and I thought, I'm not going to give those assholes a satisfaction. They'll be going around AA talking about me saying, well, you know why Annie committed suicide? She had grave and emotional and mental disorders. <laughs> so I went out to Thrifty Drug and I picked up a lot of stuff, a lot of different colors of pencils, which this sponsor that I had did not appreciate it. And I got over to her house. I didn't drive for the first four and a half years of my sobriety because I couldn't take that stupid little test. And for those of you who don't have a license and can't drive, I'm going to tell you how to get to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You hear a lot of people whine about not being able to get to a meeting. I never had a problem getting to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned very early in my sobriety, we come in here and we're loaded with guilt, loaded with it. Whether it be real or imaginary, we've got it. And so they give you a little list of names of who was, uh, you know, and they always put a little sobriety behind it, who there were 30 days or 20 days. And I call those newcomers up and I call and I say, if you don't come and pick me up and if I die from this disease, it's going to be your fault. <laughs> I got more rides than anybody could tell. I had rides and then I would get down to the meeting and I would pick out all who was going to take me home and who wasn't going to take me home. And, now, I want to tell you, don't do that with old-timers, because somewhere along the line, they lose that guilt. They'll tell you, walk, take a bus, or ride your bike, if you've got one. <laughs> so I go over to Lois's house, and you got to remember, Lois has got five children. They're all very little. And I got there, her house, and I brought all this uh, equipment, and I papers and pencils, and I sat down on her kitchen table, and, and she looked at all this stuff, and I said, we're going to do my inventory. And she said, we are? And I said, yes. And so I kind of pushed it over towards her. You know, you beat a lot of narrow-minded people here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, what is this for? I said, well, I'm going to tell you all about it. You start writing. Yeah. <laughs> and she kind of looked at me and she said, honey, I've done my inventory. And I said, well, now you get to do mine. You know? And the only emotion I knew when I got here was I was in rage. I had a lot of hostility and a lot of anger and a bad attitude. I got home, I left, left there angry, hurt, so misunderstood, you know, just couldn't get her to do it. Got home and for the next month I would call her on the phone and, and this was way before machines and she'd say, right, 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 right. 
and I would hang up the phone. And I was a great pacer. I loved to pace. I used to put the big book under my arm and I'd pace back and forth, back and forth. I used to think all this knowledge from the big book was going to go through my arm and up into my head, and that's how I was going to get this. I wasn't able to tell Lois that when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, it's got absolutely nothing to do with my disease. Nothing to do with my disease. It's got to do with the setting I came from and where I came from, and there wasn't much value put on a lot of things. And I did not know how to read, and I didn't know how to write when it came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's because I came from Ireland. And that's because other people in Ireland don't know how to do it. I just, my parents were not educated, and I had not got to learn it. I didn't go to school till I was seven, and I left school when I was 13 years of age. But I am so grateful. I am truly, truly grateful. Lois said to me, honey, you do whatever you have to do, but you do that inventory. Because it was the first time that I was going to be disciplined and made do something for myself. And I did that inventory, and I went to her, and I gave her my fifth step. And I want you to know, I know how to read, and I know how to write. And I wish, and it says in step six in the, in the 12 and 12, that wishful thinking is a character defect. And I wish to this day that I kept that inventory. Because there's no comparison to the woman that stands before you tonight, to that girl that did that inventory many years ago. I um, found out a lot of things about me in that inventory. And if there's anyone here today, I was a great blamer. I blamed everybody. I couldn't take responsibility for any action for a lot, of, a lot of years until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went back into, I was born with tremendous, tremendous fear, tremendous fear. I just was so full of fear. I was born into this family and I blamed this family. And I want you to know, both my parents are gone. My mom died two years ago, right before I was diagnosed. My dad died in 81. I love these people. It took me a long time to love them. And they gave me as much as they were given, which was very, very little. And I hope that through you and through my program that I get to break that chain and that my children got more than I got because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was raised, born into the family of ten. I was the eighth child out of ten. And we were not very wealthy. We were very poor. And my dad had a problem with alcohol. I didn't know that. And I was also brought up in the school of Alcoholics Anonymous that you do not label somebody else an alcoholic. But I've listened to enough men here in Alcoholics Anonymous to know that my dad definitely had a problem with alcohol. He not just had a problem with alcohol, he had a problem with gambling, and he had a problem with women. And my dad would go out and get drunk. And my mother, who never did anything, never grew up emotionally, just had one kid right after the other, who was kind of a little neurotic. Not quite as neurotic as our Al-Anon speaker yesterday. <laughs> neurotic. <laughs> he'd go out on Saturday night and he'd come home and he'd pour out that bed and the fight would start. And as a young child, if I go back when I was about six and I tell you this part of my life because it's real important for me to tell you this part of my life. And I put the pillow over my head and I would be praying to that God that I was terrified of, terrified of him. And I'd ask him to please let him kill her 
or maybe she would kill him, or maybe I would die. And I got up the next morning, and until I came to you, I didn't know what I felt except I felt really bad. And what I felt as a young child was I had guilt, remorse, and I was a very, very bad person for thinking these bad thoughts of my parents. I went to Catholic school, not because we're rich, simply because that's all there is in the part of Ireland I come from. And people used to say to me, how come you didn't get an education? And my pet answer was I had frustrated Irish nuns. I used to have psychiatrists cry about my not having an education and what those walking nuns did to me. And Mary Reagan, who most of you know here, Mary is not doing well. And today, in the closing prayer, please hold her up. Mary did play a part in my sobriety at one time. And Mary, I was talking to Mary one day, and I was crying about what happened to me as a child and what these walking nuns did to me. And Mary looked at me and she said, Honey, you really had it bad. She said, You know, I had German nuns, and they were trained by Hitler. <laughs> so the moral of that story is, as always, somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous is going to have it just a little worse than you. <laughs> I got my first brainstorm in second grade. I decided I was so tired. I was not getting just abused at home. I was also getting abused in school. And I was tired of this nun always asking me for that catechism, and I couldn't memorize it. I could not memorize it. Because there was so much stuff going on in that house. There was always a lot of energy, negative energy, a lot of hostility, a lot of anger. There wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough of anything. And I uh, could not, I didn't know that I couldn't hold the thought. And I could try to memorize it. And so this one morning I decided I was going to get her before she got me. And she asked me the question, and I couldn't tell her. And she grabbed a hold of me, and she pulled me out of the seat, and I often slapped her as hard as any little second grader can hit somebody across the face. And Mother Superior just happened to be teaching in the other room, and she just happened to turn her head, and she just happened to see me do it. And she came running into that classroom, and she grabbed me by the back of the neck. And, you know, she had all those big, long black gown on, you know, the rosary beads are just flying all over the place. <laughs> and shakes me like a puppy dog. And I stood there just as defiant as anything and said, I didn't do it. Dirty kids, mother superior, and this nun felt that slap in my face and I stood, stood there and told them I didn't do it. And they took me out of there and they moved me to another grade and I assumed I was supposed to pray. And I uh, got tired of kneeling on those hardwood floors because they wanted me to tell, me, tell them I was sorry. And I went back up to that classroom three weeks later. I would say three weeks, it felt like three weeks. And stood in front of all those kids with my head lowered my eyes lowered down with that sister with that round pointer sticking on my back and wanted me to say I'm sorry and I said I'm sorry and something else happened inside of me and what happened inside of me was you against me and it was always you against me from that time on I even when I was out there drinking until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous no matter what I got caught doing I would stand and look at you and say it wasn't me because I couldn't take responsibility for my behavior I left school when I was 13 years of age I went to work in a factory. I worked there until I came to this country. And I had all those hopes and dreams that every other girl had. I still have them. <laughs> right, Carol? I was going to find me a nice Irish fella and get married and have children. And I am truly, truly grateful that God does not answer stupid prayers. <laughs> but I found boys and I found alcohol all in the same week. And my first drink was a half bottle of cognac. It was at the Abbey Baldwin Dance in Drada, in the hometown I came from. 
And this guy told me at the time to South California, he would give me a pound note, which was equivalent to $3 in your money at that time. It's a lot of money. And I dragged that half dollar cognac down and I didn't stop and I went into the bathroom and I got very, very, very sick. And I came back out and I said, give me my money. I didn't know until I came to you that I sold my soul for a lousy drink that night at the Abbey Ballroom. And I went up to the bar and I ordered me another drink because if you're Irish and you know how to order it, they will serve it to you. There's no questions about IDs or how old you are. There is nothing, none of that goes on over there. If you know how to order it, they will serve it. And I ordered a drink and I continued to drink that evening and something magic happened for me. And you heard it all through this weekend, the magic. That thing that hits into the pity of gut and it takes that's not out of the pity of the gut. And it doesn't matter whether your father is a drunk. It doesn't matter whether your mother's getting beat up. It doesn't matter whether there's no food in that house. It doesn't matter whether you have no education. It doesn't matter whether you can't read or write. You found the secret to living, and I found the secret to living. I didn't drink every day from that time on, but I drank at every opportunity from that time on. I gotta mention Mary Jane. I gotta tell you the miracles that happened for me. And Betty knows Mary Jane or knew Mary Jane. Mary Jane was a school teacher from Costa Mesa. There's people in here that knew her. And Mary Jane and Carolyn C. were both teachers. I came into a very high class group when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. We had lawyers and judges and bank presidents who robbed the bank later. We had all kinds and they had me. And Mary Jane took the time with me and found out what was wrong. She was a special education teacher. And she took me out to Orange County, and, and her and Carolyn, and they took me to some psychiatrists out there who dealt with people like me. And they were in the educational field, and they tested me, and what they came up was, they said that I wasn't wired right. I have known all my life that I wasn't wired right. I didn't need a doctor to tell me I wasn't wired right. And they said I had a thing called dyslexia. And I went to school with Helen. Helen and I went to school. We cheated a lot, but we went to school. We both graduated together. And that was a miracle. I sponsored her, Helen for a short time. And that's the only, re- the only reason she came into my life was to, to give me that gift of going to school. I thought if she was crazy enough to do it, I could do it too. I am I'm truly grateful that alcoholism does not choose its victims. It doesn't care whether you have an education or you don't have an education or you're overeducated or you're undereducated. If you have the disease of alcoholism, you have the disease of alcoholism. It's just that simple. On that time when I was that age, by the time I was 17 years of age, my father made a decision for me. I had nothing to do with this decision. He decided I should come to California. I'll be here 35 years and I'm still looking for those streets paved with gold. I also didn't know that the way my head was running at that time was that it was going to be different. And you hear that a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that that's alcoholic thinking. It was going to be different. I was going to get away from this family and I was never going to tell a soul I was Irish, ever. I couldn't understand why any one of you would ever want to be Irish. I couldn't understand. I thought you ought to go to Ireland and live there for a little while and find out what it's all about. I like being Irish today. I have dealt with all of those things and I really believe that if it wasn't for Irish you could hold your eight meetings in a phone booth. <laughs> I also know that some of you don't like to hear that. You don't have to be Irish in order to become a member but it helps. 
It just helps. My sponsor told me years ago the reason why God created whiskey was he was afraid the Irish were going to take over the world, so he thought he'd slow them down just a little bit. I had an aunt, several aunts, but this particular aunt took me up to Dublin to fill out all these papers. I had never been anywhere in Ireland, ever. I was the only place I ever got in Ireland was Dublin to the zoo, and that was as far as I ever got to Ireland. And all of a sudden, he sent me to the other end of the earth. And I was not very well emotionally or education-wise equipped to come to this country. And it was very easy to get into the country at that time. It was 1961. And I ended up, my aunt out all these papers and got me ready. And I remember getting on that plane. I remember drinking champagne. And I remember the feeling. And the feeling was freedom. I wanted to be free. I wanted to be free more than anything in my life. I wanted to be free. But it was a false feeling of freedom behind alcohol. And I was never to feel that feeling again till I came to you. And my freedom has come real slow. Today I can tell you from the bottom of my heart for I am truly am a free spirit in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got here and I lived in Palestine for the next couple of years with a very, very nice family. And these were people I did go and I made amends to. And these were people who were very, very grateful that I found the fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. She had four sons and I would take care of those boys. And she had a beautiful liquor bar, a liquor, she had this liquor a bar in her house is what she had. And she used to drink that 108-proof vodka, and I used to drink that 108-proof vodka. And I'd fill it up with water, and then when she drank it, she couldn't understand how come she couldn't get a buzz. I'm just drinking all that good water. When I drank, I was really highly allergic to alcohol. When I got drunk, I used to break out all over my body in great big wells. And I shook a lot, and I shook a lot from what I drank, and I shook a lot because I had a lot of secrets. And they tell me here in Alcoholics Anonymous, we are as sick as our secrets. And I couldn't tell that woman, she would take me down to Redonda Beach High, she wanted me to go to school. And I couldn't tell her that I couldn't go in there, and I couldn't write my name, and I couldn't definitely, I could not go in there. And I couldn't go in and be with my peers. I couldn't stand to be around my peers. I always ran around with a lot of people a lot older than me, and most of those people I ran around with all died, and they all died horrible deaths of alcoholism. And as I'm standing outside that door, I can tell you today was like I was experiencing, I was going into a catatonic state of mind with absolute sheer fear that somebody was going to find out something about me. That's one of the greatest gifts I got here in Alcoholics Anonymous. My life's an open book. I don't have to run down alleys. I don't have to keep secrets. I can tell you, and I can tell you who I am when I need to tell you, and if you ask me, I will tell you. And that's the freedom for me. I slid down that door and she looked at me and she said, you don't have to do it because I was going into a catatonic state of mind with absolute sheer fear. And she said, you don't have to do this, Annie, and I didn't have to do it. I started running around down the beach pier and I ran around a lot of people used a lot of hard drugs and this was in the 60s. And I never got involved in drugs and the only reason I didn't get involved in drugs was because I was absolutely totally terrified that if I was caught, I would be deported back to Ireland and my father would meet me at Dublin Airport and he would kill me first and ask questions later. My father caught me smoking when I was 10 years of age. That was my first drug of choice. I still have a hell of a time with it. I, um, my grandmother turned me on. <laughs> my poor grandmother, I loved her very, very much. She was an invalid. She had a stroke and she was all paralyzed down on one side and she lay in bed for seven years. And I used to stop by there after school to see her and she'd ask me for the bedpan and I wouldn't give it to her unless she gave me a cigarette. When I tell you I have nowhere to go back to, I don't have anywhere to go back to. This is it. This is as good as it gets for me. And so my dad caught me smoking, and as I tell him I'm not smoking, I ate a cigarette. He literally shoved it down my throat, 
and he took a dog leaf to me and he whipped me and he kicked me. And my mother, I can still see her coming in and she said, oh my God, Jack, you're going to kill her. And he said, yes, I'm going to kill her. She's no good. I never will be any good. I remember they couldn't let me out of that house for a couple of weeks because I was so badly beaten. And that memory stayed with me and I knew that I was deported out of this country because of drugs that he would kill me first and ask questions later. My dad had tremendous, tremendous power over me for a long time, into, uh, even into my sobriety. I couldn't, I, I had a lot of problems in that area. I listened to women talk about their mother. I didn't have a problem with my mother. I felt sorry for my mother and I never wanted to be like her. Yeah, because she just lived in a lot of self-pity and I never wanted to be like her. And my dad was the power in that house. And uh, I ended up, I left those people. She went down and told all these places to talk, they have them close up to this and stop serving me. And I moved on uptown. The other thing that I am so grateful for is I got up this morning and I had a shower. My eyebrows are in the right place. This is not black and blue marks from somebody hitting me. This is eyeshadow, folks. My clothes are clean. This is not always the way it was. I don't ever want to forget where I came from. I don't ever want to get so big in Alcoholics Anonymous that I will be so small. You've got to stay small here. You've got to stay small. Because the highest you can get here is sober. That's it. You don't get any higher than that. And that's how my life, I drank everything and anything anybody ever gave me. But when I bought, I bought Ripple. God, I loved Ripple. You know? I never felt cheated when I drank Ripple, ever. You know, I would throw that stuff up and I would hold my nose to get it down. And you'd get two drunks for the price of one when you drank Ripple because you drink water the next day, you get drunk all over again. I used to carry that Ripple in a paper sack and I don't consider myself a wino. I guess I would be a winette. And I used to walk along Cavalier Avenue and give all the cars a finger, cussing at everybody. I hated everybody. I hated the Americans. I thought, you know, all you guys ever did was talk about education. Not whether you did or you didn't. This is what my head was telling me. And I didn't want anything to do with those bloody Irish because all they did was change addresses and they behaved the same way here as they did over there. And who the hell wants to be Irish? And so I didn't want, didn't know who I was or what I was or where I was going. So I took the lesser two evils. Someone told me not to call you Mexicans, Spaniards, he said tonight. Don't be calling them Mexicans. I got involved with a group of Mexicans <laughs> over in Torres Lanita. Well, my friend Angie, who is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, who is Mexican, and many, many, many years ago we sat down and we dissected the two nationalities and what we came up with. The only difference between the Irish and the Mexicans is that we ate potatoes and they ate beans. They drink hard, love hard, and beat the hell out of you on Saturday night whether you need it or not. <laughs> and this was a very, very, very exciting time in my life. I was jumping out of cars. The only time you ever see a Mexican going fast is when the cops are following them. <laughs> jumping out of cars and chasing and running and this guy was real strange he drank in the morning I was just drinking in the afternoon and he introduced me to the morning drink and I didn't have a big resume for a job it didn't work for some reason that I just didn't seem to be able to show up my grandmother died so many times at this particular job I was always taking trips to Ireland I didn't have two nickels to rub together this guy said to me one time he said how many grandmothers do you have you know? I mean I just forgot you know I had so many and I couldn't go to Ireland. I couldn't even get out of Gardena. Never mind, go to Ireland. So I got to thinking one day that this guy ought to marry me and it wasn't even leap year. 
And I took a half a gallon of Red Mountain wine, and Norm Alfie always said, when you drink, don't think. Don't think. It's even dangerous to think today. My sponsor, when I was new, got a big sign, and I said, but it says on the wall, think, think, think. And she said, that's for other people, not for you. You do not think. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't think. Because I get to thinking, and I was all the wrong kind of thinking. So I got to thinking that this guy ought to marry me. I got out on the highway. I did a lot of hitchhiking in those days and hitchhiked the ride over Tornfornita, and I found him. Now, you could smell me long before you could see me, and I proposed to him. And him looked at me, and he said, I wouldn't marry you if you were handed to me on a silver platter. I don't know how you handle rejection. I don't handle it real well. <laughs> My next thought was, I'm going to kill you, son of a bitch. Because one less Mexican in this world, we'll all be better off. Now, I told you I didn't know to have a driver's license, so I was four and a half years sober. But I used to do a little driving in California. And so I got him on the freeway, the Harbor Freeway. It was probably the only freeway there then. And I had the blind between my legs. And I got him in the car. And I turned the wheel of that car on the Harbor Freeway. And I took 25 feet of guardrail and went down 30 feet in the bankman. And I thought I killed me a Mexican. And what I learned out of that, folks, is if you're going to kill one Mexican, you've got to kill the whole family. <laughs> For some strange reason, they don't take you kindly to you messing with their people, even if they do call you Annie the Irish Mexican. I also learned that when you're running next to people, you don't ever yell cop. And I yelled cop one day downtown Long Beach, used to have telephone booths in California at one time. And I went out to the telephone booth to call the cops and on him. And he came out after me and he kicked the door and he kicked me and I yelled uncle. Now I have no illusions. There's not something wrong with me. And I don't know what normal is. I don't run around with normal people. If there's anybody in this room that claims they're normal, I don't even want to talk to you. Most of my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous are fourth low. And I love them very, very much. And I don't know what normal is. I think my oldest daughter probably comes to the closest normal person I've ever met. And I keep telling her husband that he better save his money because she's my daughter and she's probably into a good psychiatrist by the time she's 40. And the only place I ever get, I get out of that phone booth, I go back into the bar. And I guess normal people don't do that kind of stuff. But where I get to see normal is on my washer and dryer. It says normal cycle. And that's the only place I ever get to see normal because I don't get to see normal in these rooms. I like to think I'm delicate. <laughs> As John D. used to say, I'm sensitive and I don't suffer well. <laughs> he always said that he was quite a man, John D. I've had the pleasure of knowing some great, great people here in Alcoholics Anonymous. That guy went back into that bar and I said, let's have a drink and we'll discuss this. And we discussed it and got drunk. I had some real, real, real damaging things going on inside of me. And what they were was that if you didn't hit me, you didn't love me. You know, in the 29 and a half years that I've been sober, nobody has found it necessary to hit me. But if you'd like to get together with my sponsor after this convention, she'll tell you about some of the phone calls she got to get me thrown out of Alcoholics Anonymous. She used to get a lot of calls about my behavior. I, um, I also had a thing that went on in there with that I wanted somebody that talks about me in Step 8 and the 12 and 12. It says that we antagonize and bring out the final character defects in other people. And I would antagonize you, and I would antagonize you till you had no other way to go but to hit me. And I wanted you to hit me hard to kill that part of me 
that kept screwing up. That 5% of me. And if you had killed that part of me, you would have killed all of me because that's the part of me you love here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I ended up in Arizona and I almost got that wish. I was in Prescott, Arizona. It took me years to remember where I was. And this guy, I said something to his wife, his wife, I couldn't tell you to this day what I said. But I went out to the back seat of the car to pass out. We'd been on a three or four day run. And I went out to the back seat of the car to pass out and four Mexican guys came out after me and they pulled me out of the back seat and they talked in Spanish. And this one guy said, we'll go get the truck, we'll run over her. And I went and got the truck and these three guys that got me down in the dirt road. And as the headlights come, I don't know where to this day, except I had to be a God in my life even then, where I got the presence of mind to roll off that dirt road. And as that truck, those guys jumped off of me, and that truck came towards me, I rolled off the dirt road. I got up off of that dirt road, and I need a drink. I need a drink more than anything in my life, I need a drink. And I'm the type of drunk, I live by four mailboxes at Ross Market or some sign. And how I'm ever going to get back to Los Angeles. And the guy comes along and he picks me up and we go to a dirty motel and we go to his liquor store and we pick up a bottle and that's how I learned to solve my problems. I had no idea how to solve my problems until I come to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, you talked a great deal about dying. I know what it's like to die. I know what it's like to die when you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for me, they would get to that part in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they say, you have to let go of all your old ideas. And I would get this thing inside of me, and it would come up to my throat, and I'd kind of choke, and I'd, I'd swallow hard, and I'd think I can't. There's absolutely no way I can let go of all my old ideas. I knew what my old ideas did for me. I knew what would happen to me. I didn't know what was going to happen to me with your new ideas here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I am so grateful that the people in Alcoholics Anonymous knew how far down that scale I'd gone. I knew that they would have to spoon feed me Alcoholics Anonymous a little at a time because I would have missed a whole lot. I lived in this little room and I died a thousand times in this little room. And I had a hot plate and I had a sink and I had cockroaches and I had a girl named Annie. And you had to go down the hall to take a shower and I didn't take too many showers in those days because the only time I was ever free of what was going on inside of me was when I was under the influence of alcohol. I'd start drinking to get past the sphere, to get down the hall to take a shower and I always overshot the mark and I never got down the hall to take the shower. I remember in this little room, I remember lying on this bed, curled up, sucking off a vodka bottle, screaming like a banshee, I want somebody to understand me. There's got to be somebody in this world that understands me. And I knew there was nobody that could ever understand me because I was different. I was told all my life I was different. I got out of that bed and I put on those old rubber guy heads and that old t-shirt and that old jeans and I headed out in Western Avenue and I always found somebody. And it always lasted for a very brief time and it always ended up the same way. I got beat up and thrown and left to my own self. If you're new here today, I want you to know that I have been understood beyond understanding in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have been loved beyond anything that I ever imagined in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that did not happen for me in my first 90 days. It has happened very slow through the process of me letting go and me allowing you to love me in order so I could learn to love myself. I have so much love in my heart today that it overwhelms me.
I um, ended up on Anaheim Street, and while I was down on Anaheim Street, I know they're probably getting nervous and you're all probably tired of sitting, but they paid a lot of money for me to be here this weekend. I know. I um, ended up in Anaheim Street, and while I was on Anaheim Street, I met my husband. And while I was down there in Anaheim Street, he didn't have a job. And I said, he asked me to date him, and he said no. He asked me to get a job, and he said no. And I said, well, I said, you get a job, and I'll date you. Yeah. And I ended up, he got a job, and he worked. And I had three children to this man. And all my children are doing very, very well. And they're doing well because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I got here, I couldn't put two and two together. And because of a sponsor who would come and get my children and take them out of my house. And many times, there's people in this room that would take my children. I would take them to the meetings and they'd take them from me. Because I did not get well. I did not stop doing some of the things I did when I got to, for, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I really, for me, I had to. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, we cannot transmit something we do not have. And I could not transmit to those children something I didn't have. When I was two and a half years sober, they were sending me to Schizophrenics Anonymous. I ended up at Orange County Psycho. I didn't stay at Orange County Psycho, but I want you to know that I found something, something very, they didn't believe in going to psychiatrists at that time in Alcoholics Anonymous because so many of them had paid so much money to psychiatrists, they were not willing to listen to, even, they wouldn't even talk about it. But I found a doctor and they were glad that I was going and they encouraged me to go. And that man told me that I wanted somebody to love me and I knew there was nobody in this world that could possibly love me. And he said, there's got to be somebody that loves you. And I said, no, there isn't. And he said, there's got to be somebody. And he said, what about those people in Alcoholics Anonymous? And I told him the only requirement for a membership is a desire to stop drinking. And God only knows. They know I have a desire to stop drinking. I went home that day and I called that woman that was my sponsor. And I called her up and I said, Lois, do you love me? And she said, I love you very, very much. Lois had told me for three years on a daily basis that I was a child of God and God loved me and that she loved me. And I couldn't hear it. I really believe we're here when we're ready to hear and we see when we're ready to see. I um, found something within myself through this doctor. I got in touch with that power that you talk about here in Alcoholics Anonymous and my life has never been the same. I'd like to tell you that I've walked hand in hand with him for the last 29 and a half years. It's been a struggle, but I've walked hand in hand with him very, very close in the last two years. Uh, I'd like to close because I know they're running out of time and I ran out of time and my time is over. And uh, I want to thank you one more time for my life and for my sobriety. I, want, I always like to close with Gabron. Gabron always says, and it helped me so much, for those of you who are raising your children, you will raise your children and your children will be fine if you just grow and you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous and you try to do the best of your ability and walk this walk here in this fellowship. And Gabron says that our children come through us and my children came through me, they're not of me. They're unknown to me. And I'm so glad they're unknown to me. They're very, very precious, and I love them very, very much. And I came through the people I came through, but I'm not of those people that I came through. I'm of the people of Alcoholics Anonymous, because you are the people. You're the ones who walked the extra mile with me when nobody else would walk with me. You're the ones that sat and held my hand when nobody else would sit and hold my hand. You're the ones that seen an Annie that nobody else could possibly see. And she walks tall today with dignity, because I am a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you one more time for my life. God bless each and every one of you.